22. These are the Pharisees who have made the temple of Jerusalem to be a robber's den and have stolen glory from God. Matthew chapter 21, verse 13. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. With no concern of the sheep whatsoever, these thieves and robbers have fleeced the flock and reveal they are not the rightful owners of the sheep. It is these Pharisees that Jesus is addressing and identifying as thieves and robbers. And by stark contrast, we are introduced to the true shepherd of the sheep. There in verse 2 of chapter 10. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The true shepherd of the sheep is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus unmistakably identifies himself as the shepherd in, in both verses 11 and verse 14. He calls himself the good shepherd who gives loving care to the flock of God. There in verse 3, to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The doorkeeper was a hired under shepherd who recognized the true shepherd of the flock, opened the gate for him, assisted the shepherd in caring for the flock, and especially guarded them at night. The sheep there in verse 3 who are drawn to the shepherd are the elect of God. They are those chosen by God before the foundation of the world, as we read in Ephesians 1.4. They belong to the Father by his sovereign election and have been entrusted to care uh, of this good shepherd, uh, by the good shepherd. And so both... Uh, they belong to the Father by a sovereign election, like I said, and they're under his care. In verse 1029, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. There in John chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 4, and when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Verse 5, yet they by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So one of the main features that we see here of this shepherd's voice is the effectual call that draws these elect sheep to him. They are the ones who recognize the voice of the shepherd and respond by coming to him. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. And so in this large community sheepfold, the sheep of the other flocks hear his audible voice, but they do not recognize it as their own shepherd. We also see in 1 Corinthians 1.14, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And so this other flock, when they hear that voice, they just keep their heads down and continue to nibble on the grass. But when the chosen sheep hear the voice of their shepherd, they immediately go to the voice. The shepherd calls them by name because he knows them. 
They hear the voice of their shepherd, they raise their head, they move toward the voice and thus separate themselves from the other sheep. The elect sheep hear what the other sheep do not even discern because they are given ears to hear. The good shepherd cannot leave them in this apostate sheepfold. He must lead them out of the spiritual graveyard with its stench of death. And as they leave, the other shepherds call out to their elect sheep. They leave and the other shepherds will call out. But a stranger's voice, they will not hear. They will only follow the voice of their shepherd as he leads them out of the city and into the countryside. The sheep have left the apostate sheepfold behind and they will never return. And once in the countryside, the good shepherd builds another sheepfold. He gathers rocks from the field to build a circular wall and leaves an opening in it. At night, he lays in the opening and becomes the door for the sheep. We see that in verse 7. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And once they all are in the sheepfold, he seals them into his protective walls and keeps out any predators that will try to come against them. In order to attack the sheep, the wild beasts have to go through the shepherd. He is a heroic shepherd, full of courage in the face of any danger that would threaten his sheep. Now, you remember a very young shepherd boy uh, was making a plea to stand against the giant Philistine Goliath to King Saul. There in 1 Samuel 17, verse 34 through 36, But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it, and I struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defiled the armies of the living God. So we see this shepherd when it comes morning time, the good shepherd will rise from the opening in the wall and lead them out into the green pastures and beside the still waters. He gives them abundant life and feeds their soul until they are fully satisfied. We see in verse 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. I have to come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Now, this good shepherd leads them in the sheepfold for protection at night and leads them out into the pastures for provision for the day. This routine is repeated day after day. And the closest relationship exists between this shepherd and his sheep. He is responsible for all their needs. If need be, he will even lay down his life to protect them. Understanding the context here, there are three things to note in verses 11 through 18. Jesus begins there firstly, this latter part of his discourse, verses 11 through 18, by making the exclusive claim in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. This is the fourth of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. These strong assertions form the backbone of this fourth gospel. 
This particular I am statement by Jesus is located in the apex position of these claims. Three I am statements lead up to this one, and then there's three I am statements that lead away from this one. And so this one's in the dead set middle. Jesus has already said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. 8, 12, I am the light of the world. 10, 9, I am the door. Here in the middle and premier position, we see in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Leading away from this one, 11, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Verse 15, verse 5, I am the vine. This fourth I am claim that we're in in verse 11 here is the center because the Christ, uh, the cross is the center of Christianity. This is Jesus' fullest explanation of his substitutionary death and bodily resurrection. The cross is the cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith and occupies the preeminent place in the I am claims here in the Gospel of John. Uh, but you think, what does I am the good shepherd entail? First, this exclusive claim in verse 11, I am the good shepherd, is a declaration of his deity. When Jesus said, I am, he was claiming the divine name by which God revealed himself at the burning bush there in Exodus 3.14. I am who I am. I am is from the same Hebrew root meaning to be from which the sacred name of God, Yahweh, or Jehovah is derived. This divine name means that God is the self-sufficient, self-governed, self-ruling, sovereign God who is not dependent upon anyone or anything for his existence. In unmistakable terms, Jesus has taken this holy and sacred name for God upon himself. By saying, I am, Jesus is claiming to be truly God and fully God. This cornerstone truth is taught throughout the entire Bible as we see Jesus perform the works that only God can perform. Jesus receives worship that only God can receive. Jesus possesses attributes that only God can possess. And Jesus is called names that only God is called and is equated with God. Those who heard Jesus that day understood that he was making himself out to be God. We see in John 10, 33, makes it clear. The Jews answered him saying, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. And so by identifying himself as I am, Jesus is claiming to be co-equal with the Father. Likewise, God identified himself as the shepherd of his sheep, of his people. David wrote in Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd. We see the psalmist Asaph address God in Psalm 80, uh, verse 1, O shepherd of Israel. There in Psalm 100, verse 3, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So throughout the Old Testament, God is identified as the shepherd of his people. Isaiah 40, verse 11, he will feed his sheep like a shepherd. Ezekiel 34, verses 11 through 12, for thus says the Lord God, I, indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, 
So will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. So the first thing we see in this claim is his deity. I am the good shepherd is his deity. Second, the exclusive claim of I am states his sufficiency. A shepherd assumed the total responsibility to meet the needs of his sheep. Now, this is not my notes, but you do a study of sheep, you know that they're, they're stupid. A sheep can follow. If one sheep is, is rebellious and walks away from the other sheep, the other sheep will just follow along. He comes to a cliff and goes off the side of the cliff. The rest of the sheep will follow him off the edge of the cliff. There needs to be a shepherd to say, whoa, and keep them in line in what's good for them because they don't even know what's good for them. So this imagery pictures Jesus attending all the needs of his people. This is precisely what David states in 23.1, Psalm 23.1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He'll meet all my needs. This means he supplies all the needs of all his people. Jesus will say to his disciples, John 15.5, For without me... You can do nothing. The Apostle Paul would write when people were in dire times of life, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He wrote that in a jail cell. To know this shepherd is to know the one who meets all the needs of his flock, whether directly or indirectly, whether personally or, or providentially, he has assumed the care of his own. We see there here, I am claim is his sufficiency. And we've already covered the I am claim is his deity. Thirdly, this exclusive claim at I am means that he is the one and only good shepherd. He's not merely one of many good shepherds, but he is the good shepherd. There are no other good shepherds but this one. He is the only shepherd of his sheep who is leading them into the presence of God. Peter testified of this in Acts chapter 4 verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other shepherd who can rescue perishing sinners or meet their needs except this shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know the exclusive claim, I am, we see that he is the one and only good shepherd. And then we see that that statement means, talks of his sufficiency. And then it also, no doubt, concerning his deity. Fourth, this exclusive claim of I am is a guarantee of his goodness. When Jesus says there in verse 11, I am the good shepherd, he says he is pledging himself to meet all the needs of his flock. This word good in the Greek literally means noble, excellent, beautiful, choice, ideal, superior, and morally perfect. This is the kind of shepherd Jesus is. He is perfect in his person, character, and being. As the good shepherd, he always does good to his sheep, all their days. David writes in Psalm 23, 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. No preacher will ever preach any better 
than when he proclaims the exclusive claims of this good shepherd, Jesus Christ. In the flock, if the flock is to be fed and more than most of these flocks, if you see that the flock is to be fed, the more they must be told of him. And, and that's the only way the people of God are going to grow. There needs to be less of the preacher and more of Jesus and his preaching. As John the Baptist said when they, uh, one of his congregationalists came to him, when Jesus already came, was baptized, and, and began to walk away, and majority of the congregation of John's followed Jesus. One of them came up and pretty much just said, John, he's causing a church split. And John's response in John 3.30 says, He must increase, but I must decrease. That is a thing a, a lady made for me. Said, what's your life scripture? I said, well, this one took me years to get, but I finally got it. She thought it was, she pulled out a pen to write, and I said, he must increase, but I must decrease. She wrote up a thing for me and put it in a frame, and it sets at my front door to remind me when I walk in and out who it is that needs to increase. No true God called a preacher that's called to preach wants his congregation to be deprived of hearing about Jesus and his gospel, his good news. Pastors must point their listeners to this chief shepherd there in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. We must do all that we can to hold forth the goodness, the glory, the greatness, and the gospel of this shepherd. Then, secondly, Jesus Christ also testifies to his excellent character. He does more than simply announce that he is the good shepherd. He proceeds to give compelling reasons why he is the good shepherd. Jesus offers four reasons why he is this good shepherd. In the first importance, Jesus explains his excellent character by asserting that he dies for his sheep there in verse 11. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. This figurative language pictures his substitutionary death on behalf of his sheep in order to protect his sheep who are constantly exposed to great danger. When his flock is vulnerable and defenseless, the good shepherd delivers them from the danger in which they find themselves by laying down his life unto death. Jesus stresses the voluntary nature by which he lays down his life for the sheep. When he says the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, he indicates that his life would not be taken by others, but be given by him. Jesus will stress this aspect of his uh, death five times in this passage. Once in verse 11, 15, 17, and twice in verse 18. Jesus will say in verse 18, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. To be sure, this means that his blood was not spilt, but was poured out. To be sure of it. Further, this indicates that the cross was not a human accident, but a divine appointment. He did not say, I am finished on the cross. But in John 19.30, it is finished. You see, Jesus chose the time and place 
to give his life for the sheep. This statement in verse 11, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, also emphasizes the vicarious nature of his death. The little preposition for in the Greek, hooper, is vitally important. As large doors swing on small hinges, major theology hinges on this little preposition for. The Greek word hooper means for the benefit of, for the sake of, instead of, in the place of. This teaches the substitutionary nature of the death of Jesus Christ. He died in the place of his sheep. Elsewhere, Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 28, listen for this word for. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The Apostle Paul said the same, Galatians 1, 4. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Ephesians 5, 2. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. Moreover, Jesus states how specific his death would be. When he says the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, he stresses it is for the sheep that he will die. The sheep are those who have been given to him by the Father before they ever come to him. John 10, 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. They are those who recognize his voice and are drawn to it, as in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. The sheep are those who are led out of apostate Israel to follow the shepherd. Jesus will give his life for his sheep, but not for other sheep who are not his own possession, nor will he die for the thieves and the robbers who are not his sheep. Not every person in the world has been given to him by the Father. John 10, 26, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. But all for whom Jesus dies will never perish. We know that in verse 28. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. With these words, Jesus is the expositor of the cross, interpreting his own death and teaching a definite atonement. Jesus made it clear that he did not die a universal atonement for an anonymous group of unnamed people. Rather, he made a definite atonement for those who have been chosen by the Father in eternity past and given to him. He died for those sheep whom he calls by name. When Jesus says there in verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. His words are abundantly clear concerning for whom he died. He repeats the exclusive nature of his atonement. I lay down my life for the sheep. The intent of Jesus in dying... Upon the cross defines the extent of his death. You answer why he died, and you will know for whom he died. In this discourse, Jesus teaches that he did not come to die for the entire sheepfold. If Jesus died for everyone, then guess what, church? Everyone would be saved. But he came for his sheep, and it is for this sheep that he will die. None of them will ever perish. This specific extent of the atonement is further taught in an analysis 
of the unity of the Trinity. Jesus will say in verse 29, My Father who has given them to me, referring to the sheep, who will hear his voice in verse 27, and he knows them and they follow him. These are the same sheep to whom he gives eternal life in verse 28. None of these sheep will ever perish nor be snatched out of his hand or the hand of the Father in verse 29. Jesus says there in verse 30, I and my Father are one. This does not mean that the Father and the Son are one person. Such a statement would be heretical, Because he's one God in three persons. Instead, this claim means the Father and the Son are one in mission, one in purpose, and one in saving intent. Those whom the Father has chosen has been given to the Son, and the Son has received them as the Father's love gift. In turn, the Son has come into this world to be the Good Shepherd who lays down his life exclusively for the very same sheep that the Father chose and entrusted to him. You see, when you look at passages like Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, the most convincing argument for definitive atonement is definite atonement is the unity of the Trinity. Specifically, it is how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit operate in perfect harmony as one Savior saving one group of people. This oneness in purpose is why Jesus commanded, you get this, this is why Jesus commanded that baptism is to be in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because they're in unity as one Savior. All three persons of the Godhead work together in perfect unity, each one a Savior, saving one flock of sheep. This cohesive unity necessitates a definite atonement by Jesus to work in oneness with the saving purpose of the Father. You think about this. Before time, the Father chose his elect. Within time, God the Son laid down his life for those same chosen ones. And day by day, even today, God the Spirit regenerates them. Otherwise, if this wasn't the the key here, God the Father would choose to save those who believe. But God the Son would die to save a total different group, the entire world. Then the Spirit would try to save yet a different group, those who hear the gospel. This incoherent view fractures the unity of the Trinity resulting in three different missions. And by stark contrast to this view, Jesus says that he lays down his life for those sheep whom the Father gave to him. Jesus states in verse 14, I know my sheep, meaning he will die for those who are my sheep or my own. Elsewhere in verse 13, John chapter 15 and verse 13, Jesus says that he lays down his life for his friends, namely his disciples. In Acts 20, 28, Paul teaches that Christ purchased the church with his own blood. In Romans chapter 8, verse 33, the Apostle Paul writes that Jesus died for the elect. Later in Ephesians 5, 25, he emphasizes that Christ gave himself for the bride, the church. 
Hebrews 2.9. Here the Hebrew author writes that Jesus tasted death for everyone who believes. And in Hebrews 2.13, these who believe are, quote, the children whom God has given me, unquote. Each of these passages teaches the particular atonement of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Now at the cross, Jesus did not purchase the entire world and receive in return only those who believe in him. Instead, there was perfect equity or justice at Calvary. There was no injustice at the cross. Jesus received all whom he purchased. He was not shortchanged. He was not gypped. Jesus was not cheated in his redemption for sinners. He was not stiffed at Golgotha. Jesus will preserve all that he bought, no more, no less. All whom he redeemed at the cross are his eternal possession. Some push back, pointing to verses teaching that Jesus died for the world. But such interpreters fail to recognize that the, world, the word world is used ten different times in the Gospel of John alone. Only one of those ten uses means literally everybody. Nine of these ten has a different meaning. It would be a rush to judgment to go into any text in the Gospel of John with the preconceived notion that the word world automatically means every person. For example... In John chapter 17, verse 9, when he's interceding to the Father, he says, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Here, he limits his intercession to those given to him by the Father. And comparably, Jesus' intercession on the cross would be for the same group for whom he intercedes in prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And his present intercession at the right hand of the Father is likewise for the same group for him he intercedes in prayer. In total contrast to the good shepherd, all the false shepherds of Israel, Jesus addressed them saying there in verse 12, But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. These other shepherds, the hirelings, or the hired hand, are the Pharisees, the very ones to whom he is speaking. They are entirely the opposite of the good shepherd. These hirelings are the false shepherds of Israel, who when they see the wolf coming, they leave the sheep and thus expose them to the, the sheep to great danger. They abandon the sheep in tough times because they are not the owner of the sheep. And when the wolf comes, Jesus explains in verse 13, the hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. These Pharisees are not the true owners of the sheep, have no interest in protecting them at the cost of their life. The Pharisees also do not recognize the voice of Jesus because they are not, of one, they are not one of his sheep. His teaching is an empty noise in their ears. They cannot hear what Jesus is saying because they do not have ears to hear. Jesus, I want you to know, unlike these hirelings here, Jesus is the good shepherd because he dies for his sheep. Jesus gives a second reason why he's a good shepherd. It's because he loves his sheep. There in verse 14, Jesus repeats the exclusive claim that he made earlier, I am the good shepherd. This reaffirmation dis uh, di distinguishes 
him from false shepherds to whom he was speaking. Then Jesus adds, I know my sheep. This does not mean that he has an intellectual knowledge of the existence. He, we do know, though, he, he knows his sheep. He knows about their sheep. But he says, I know exactly my sheep. I know who they are. He does know about us, but this is not his statement. It's certainly true that he knows about them. His statement here is more in view. When Jesus says know in the Greek there, it means to know immediately, to love, to choose to love. This, uh, that Jesus knows his sheep states that he has the most intimate, loving relationship with them, the highest of all love, agape. Else, elsewhere here in Scripture, the word know is used to represent the physical intimacy between a husband and a wife. We know in Matthew chapter 1, verse 24 and 25, Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So the Hebrew equivalent... Yada is used in the same way to describe that Adam knew his wife intimately. There in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. So in the same way, this indicates how Jesus knows his sheep with a deep, agape, redeeming love. This knowing is mutual. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep, and am known... By my own. The order of this knowing is very, very significant. Jesus first knew his sheep in eternity past, and then his sheep know him within time. This gives insight to what the word foreknowledge means, which has nothing to do with foresight. God has never looked down the proverbial tunnel of time and learned anything. If God researched anything, church, then he would not be omniscient. He would not be all-knowing. Such is blasphemous view of God. Instead, foreknowledge means that God previously loved his elect and set his heart upon them. It speaks to his eternal covenant love that is intimate, personal, and sovereign. We know and love him because he first knew and loved us. 1 John 4.10 in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the long-standing love relationship that the good shepherd has with his sheep. Jesus also states the measure to which he knows his sheep. There in verse 15. As the father knows me, even so I know the father. I lay down my life for the sheep. The closeness of this relationship is indicated in the, uh, the very small preposition with the word with used in John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word with in the Greek pros means face to face with. So throughout eternity past, Jesus was face to face before the Father in closest loving fellowship with him. John also records that Jesus was in, there in John chapter 1 and verse 18 in the bosom of the Father, indicating the close intimacy 
that has existed between the Father and the Son from all time. This same closeness is the exact same intimacy with which Jesus knows his sheep and his sheep know him. Yes, church, Jesus loves his sheep. A third reason why Jesus is the good shepherd is that he draws and gathers his lost sheep to himself. Jesus says in verse 16, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. This allegory began with Jesus calling his sheep out of the spiritual deadness of apostate Israel. When he says that he has other sheep that are not of this fold, he refers to Gentile sheep that are outside the fold of Israel. Jesus must also draw them to himself. Aren't you thankful for that, church? This is a worldwide enterprise by which these other sheep will come to him. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 11 remind us that they will come from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and comprise a number that is 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. And when Jesus says, I have other sheep, he makes the claim in the present tense. And though they have not yet come to him, he already possesses them. This is because the sheep chose them in eternity past and gave them to him. The father has chose them, these sheep, and give them to the son. So before time began, he was given them by the father and they were presently his possession. These sheep who are given to him, Jesus says, must come to him. Verse 16, them also I must bring. This is the must of divine necessity. This is the must of divine sovereignty, divine certainty, effectual calling, and irresistible, irresistible drawing. When he says, I must bring them, he indicates that they will not come on their own. The Bible elsewhere confirms this. Isaiah 53 and verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. This teaches the rebellious way, uh, wayward nature of the sheep. These lost sheep must be brought because they would not come otherwise. Charles Spurgeon said this, quote, It's a good thing God chose me before I was born. Because he surely would not have afterwards, unquote. This statement, them also I must bring, is inseparably connected with what follows in John 10, 16. And they will hear my voice. There is an inseparable connection between I must and they will. Uh, these other sheep who must be brought will hear his voice and they will come to him. By divine certainty, all the sheep for whom Christ dies will also come to him. Jesus teaches in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 44 in John chapter 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The reason the sheep have come to Jesus is not that they are smarter than the other, uh, other sheep. And I'm thinking the way I hear Christians talk sometimes, that they're literally thinking in their minds, I, why can't people be smarter, as smart as I am that I chose Christ? What's wrong with them? What well, takes the work of the Holy Spirit, church? Nor are they more spiritually or sensitive attuned 
No, it is because Jesus must bring them and they will hear his voice. This truth of divine sovereignty and the salvation enables preachers and all repentant believers to proclaim the gospel with great confidence. Why? Because it's not up to you and I to save them. We are to bring them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give them the hope they can have in the good news of Jesus Christ. This makes his servants bold in heralding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing as they preach, God works powerfully in human hearts. And why do we pray? We pray knowing that God can use the message of the gospel and will use the message of the gospel to, to transform and save lives save eternal souls those who put up the greatest resistance can be brought to faith in jesus christ when they are made to hear the voice of their shepherd yes jesus is still gathering his sheep his church this day there is yet a fourth reason why jesus is the good shepherd he unites his sheep into one flock with the same certainty jesus in verse 16 says and there will be one flock and one shepherd now here, he stresses that they will become one flock. They will no longer be scattered abroad in many different flocks. There will not be a separate Baptist flock. Uh, a lot of you just sighed. There will be no Lutheran flock. Nor will there be an isolated Presbyterian flock or an independent flock. There will not be a Messianic Jew flock nor Methodist flock. There will not even be a Reformed flock or an Armenian flock, nor will there be a distinct charismatic flock. One flock, instead, there will be one flock with one shepherd, and those sheep will only be those sheep who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. This is the point that Jesus is making. There's only one flock that comprises all his sheep. But tragically, as you hear Christians talk, when we get to heaven as if though we are going to be in different rooms, divided into many separate groups, to the contrary, we will be as one flock with one shepherd. Jesus unites his flock, his sheep. Now, the very last one to come to. Jesus concludes this explanation of the cross by stressing how intentional will be his death for his sheep. This is an emphatic choice of Jesus. We see in verse 17, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Here Jesus states that the Father loves his Son because he obeys his will. God the Father loves obedience and delights in seeing his will performed. The Father loves perfect compliance to his eternal purpose. The Son has not come into the world to do His own will. He did not come to do His own thing. The Father loves the Son because He laid down His life in full obedience to the direction of the Father. When Jesus said in verse 17, I lay down my life that I may take it again, He uses figurative language that refers to His death and resurrection. The cross will not be the end but will be followed by the empty tomb. Jesus stresses in verse 18, no one takes it from me. This is a strong negative denial that no one will take his life from him. No Roman ruler can do it. No Jewish leaders, no angry mob or unruly circumstances will take his life. No demon spirits or devil will take his life. They will only be the secondary causes under the primary cause of the sovereign will of God. 
Verse 18, I lay it down of myself, of my own initiative. I have power, authority to lay it down. Power and authority in the Greek means out of one's own being, out of one's own self. By this statement, Jesus claimed to possess the right to exercise power over his own being. Even in his incarnation, Jesus retained uh, the su supreme authority to exercise his right to lay down his life at the time and the very place of his own choosing. Jesus possessed uncontested authority to lay down his life, and he had unrivaled authority to take it up again. Jesus gave his life unto death and then raised himself from the dead. Now, in reality, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a Trinitarian re resurrection in that all three persons of the Godhead were involved in the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, nevertheless, raised himself from the dead, and he came walking out of the tomb, a risen, living, victorious Savior who was able to save his sheep fully. Jesus concludes this discourse by stating in verse 18, This command I have received from my Father. This command refers to his saving mission that he was given by the Father. He was commanded by the Father to, to leave heaven, be born of a virgin under the law and given in perfect obedience to the Father. Jesus came to earth under strict orders from his Father. Before the world began, the Father gave his chosen sheep to his Son to be his future bride. The Father then commanded the Son to enter this world, live a sinless life in order to secure the perfect righteousness that is given to his sheep in the act of justification. Jesus was commanded to give his life for his sheep and then raise himself from the dead. In response to this command, Jesus obeyed his father. Now, I want you to know something, church. Jesus was called shepherd three times in the New Testament. We see that he's called the good shepherd here, and I want you to know he dealt with the penalty of sin. As the great shepherd, there in Hebrews 13, 20-21, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, according uh, in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So as the great shepherd, he deals with the power of sin. And then we see the chief shepherd, as we read earlier in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Our chief shepherd will triumphantly return. You and I can see the signs of his imminent return in the headlines of our world and in the headaches of God's people, can we not? Indeed, his creation is groaning for his return. I believe that our Lord is making ready the day when he will call his sheep homeward. And I believe the skies are about to part and the trumpet will sound and we will see the chief shepherd appear. And that chief shepherd, he is coming to take us away from the very presence of sin. Now there's only one way to know that the Lord is your shepherd. And that is to make sure that the true shepherd is your Lord. Jesus said in John 10, 27 and 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, 
and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Church, today the call is this. Today, is the, as the Holy Spirit works, today is the day of salvation. There's no other day. Today is the only day we're assured of. This very moment is the only day we're assured of. The only moment we're assured of. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus' first message, uh, somebody once uh, said that the first word in the gospel is repent. Jesus' first message was repent and believe the gospel. Believe the good news. The King James says it this way, repent ye. Meaning, don't look at your neighbor and say he needs to repent. No, you repent and believe the gospel. The death, burial, resurrection. No other name can save your soul but this good shepherd right here. May you repent of sin, turn away from, and put your eyes focused on the cross of Calvary and the empty tomb, knowing that that was for his sheep and his sheep only. May you be his sheep he died for today and repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we're so eternally grateful for your word and the blessing that it brings us and the hope it brings us and the joy it brings to the believer it brought to me to study this. Thank you for it, my Father. I pray in the name of Jesus that your will will be accomplished with every believer in this room, will be accomplished with every unbeliever in this room, that there might be some here that you died for, that today is the day of their salvation. And we'll give you the praise for what you and only you can do in Jesus' name. Amen.